Section 32 of The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe. Three Sundays in a Week. You hard-headed, dunder-headed, obstinate, rusty, crusty, musty, fusty old savage, said I, in fancy, one afternoon, to my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon, shaking my fist at him in imagination. Only in imagination. The fact is, some trivial discrepancy did exist, just then, between what I said, and what I had not the courage to say, between what I did, and what I had half a mind to do. The old porpoise, as I opened the drawing-room door, was sitting with his feet upon the mantelpiece, and a bumper of port in his paw, making strenuous efforts to accomplish the ditty, Rempless ton, vere vide, vide ton, vere plain. My dear uncle, said I, closing the door gently, and approaching him with the blandest of smiles, you are always so very kind and considerate, and have evinced your benevolence in so many so very many ways that that i feel i have only to suggest this little point to you once more to make sure of your full acquiescence eh, said he good boy go on i am sure my dearest uncle you confounded old rascal that you have no design really seriously to oppose my union with kate this is merely a joke of yours i know ha 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 how very pleasant you are at times ha 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 said he curse you yes uh, to be sure of course i knew you were jesting now uncle all that kate and myself wish at present is that you would oblige us with your advice as as regards the time you know uncle in short when will it be most convenient for yourself that the wedding shall shall come off you know come off you scoundrel what do you mean by that? Better wait till it goes on. Ha 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 That's good. Oh, that's capital. Such a wit. But all we want just now, you know, Uncle, is that you would indicate the time precisely. Ah, uh, precisely. Uh, yes, Uncle. That is, if it would be quite agreeable to yourself. Wouldn't it answer, Bobby, if I were to leave it at random? Sometime within a year or so, for example? Must I say precisely? If you please, Uncle, precisely. Well then, Bobby, my boy, you're a fine fellow, aren't you? Since you will have the exact time, I'll... While I'll oblige you for once. Dear Uncle! Hush, sir! drowning my voice. I'll oblige you for once. You shall have my consent, and the plum. We mustn't forget the plum. Let me see. When shall it be? Tomorrow's Sunday, isn't it? Well, then, you shall be married precisely, precisely now, mind, when three Sundays come together in a week. Do you hear me, sir? What are you gaping at? I say, you shall have Kate and her plum 
when three Sundays come together in a week, but not till then, you young scrapegase. Not till then, if I die for it. You know me. I'm a man of my word. Now be off. Here he swallowed his bumper of port, while I rushed from the room in despair. A very fine old English gentleman was my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon, but unlike him of the song, he had his weak points. He was a little, pursy, pompous, passionate, semi-circular somebody with a red nose, a thick skull, a long purse, and a strong sense of his own consequence. With the best heart in the world, he contrived, through a predominant whim of contradiction, to earn for himself, among those who only knew him superficially, the character of a curmudgeon. Like many excellent people, he seemed possessed with a spirit of tantalization, which might easily, at a casual glance, have been mistaken for malevolence. To every request a positive no was his immediate answer. But in the end, in the long, long end, there were exceedingly few requests which he refused. Against all attacks upon his purse he made the most dirty defense. But the amount extorted from him, at last, was generally in direct ratio with the length of the siege and the stubbornness of the resistance. In charity no one gave more liberally, or with worse grace. For the fine arts, and especially for the belles lettres, he entertained a profound contempt. With this he had been inspired by Casimir Perrer, whose pert little query, A quoi un poète est il bon? He was in the habit of quoting, with a very droll pronunciation, as the ne plus ultra of logical wit. Thus my own inkling for the muses had excited his entire displeasure. He assured me one day, when I asked him for a new copy of Horace, that the translation of Poeta nascent non vit was a nasty poet for nothing fit, a remark which I took in high dungeon. His repugnance to the humanities had, also, much increased of late, by an accidental bias in favor of what he supposed to be natural science. Somebody had accosted him in the street, mistaking him for no less a personage than Dr. Double L. D., the lecturer upon quack physics. This set him off at a tangent, and just at the epoch of this story, for story it is getting to be after all, my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon was accessible and pacific only upon points which happened to chime in with the caprioles of the hobby he was riding. For the rest, he laughed with his arms and legs, and his politics were stubborn and easily understood. He thought, with Horsley, that people have nothing to do with the laws but to obey them. I have lived with the old gentleman all my life. My parents, in dying, had bequeathed me to him as a rich legacy. I believe the old villain loved me as his own child, nearly, if not quite, as well as he loved Kate. But it was a dog's existence that he led me, after all. From my first year until my fifth, he obliged me with very regular floggings. From five to fifteen, he threatened me, hourly, with the house of correction. From fifteen to twenty, not a day passed in which he did not promise to cut me off with a shilling. I was a sad dog, it is true, but then it was a part of my nature, a point of my faith. In Kate, however, I had a firm friend, and I knew it. She was a good girl, and told me very sweetly that I might have her, plum and all, 
whenever I could badger my grand-uncle Rumgudgeon into the necessary consent. Poor girl! She was barely fifteen, and without this consent, her little amount in the funds was not comatable until five immeasurable summers had dragged their slow length along. What then to do? At fifteen, or even at twenty-one, for I had now passed my fifth Olympiad, five years in prospect are very much the same as five hundred. In vain we beseech the old gentleman with importunities. Here was a piece de la resistance, as Monsieur Unde and Caramé would say, which suited his perverse fancy to a T. It would have stiffed the indignation of Job himself to see how much like an old mouser he behaved to us two poor wretched little mice. In his heart he wished for nothing more ardently than our union. He had made up his mind to this all along. In fact, he would have given ten thousand pounds from his own pocket. Kate's plum was her own if he could have invented anything like an excuse for complying with our very natural wishes. But then we had been so impudent as to broach the subject ourselves. Not to oppose it under such circumstances, I sincerely believe, was not in his power. I have said already that he had his weak points, but speaking of these I must not be understood as referring to his obstinacy, which was one of his strong points, when I mention his weakness, I have allusion to a bizarre old womanish superstition which beset him. He was great in dreams, portents, et id genus omne of rigmarole. He was excessively punctilious, too, upon small points of honor, and, after his own fashion, was a man of his word, beyond doubt. This was, in fact, one of his hobbies, the spirit of his vows he made no scruple of setting it not, but the letter was a bond inviolable. Now it was this latter peculiarity of his disposition, of which Kate's ingenuity enabled us one fine day, not long after our interview in the dining-room, to take a very unexpected advantage, and having thus, in the fashion of all modern bards and orators, exhausted in promogenia, all the time at my command, and nearly all the room at my disposal, I will sum up in a few words what constitutes the whole pith of the story. It happened then, so the fates ordered it, that among the naval acquaintances of my betrothed were two gentlemen who had just set foot upon the shores of England after a year's absence, each in foreign travel. In company with these gentlemen, my cousin and I preconcertedly paid Uncle Rugmudgeon a visit on the afternoon of Sunday, October the 10th, just three weeks after the memorable decision which had so cruelly defeated our hopes. For about half an hour the conversation ran upon ordinary topics, but at last we contrived, quite naturally, to give it the following turn. Captain Pratt. Well, I have been absent just one year. Just one year today as I live. Let me see. Yes, this is October the 10th. You remember, Mr. Rubgudgeon, I called this day year to bid you goodbye. And, by the way, it does seem something like a coincidence, does it not, that our friend, Captain Smitherton here, has been absent exactly a year also, a year today. Smitherton. Yes, just one year to a fraction. You will remember, Mr. Rumgudgeon, that I called with Captain Pratt on this very day, last year, to pay my parting respects. Uncle. Yes, 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 I remember it very well. Very queer indeed. Both of you gone just one year. A very strange coincidence indeed. 
just what Dr. Double L.D. would denote an extraordinary concurrence of events. Dr. Dub... Kate, interrupting. To be sure, Papa, it is something strange. But then Captain Pratt and Captain Smitherton didn't go altogether the same route. And that makes a difference, you know. Uncle. Oh, I don't know any such thing, you hussy. How should I? I think it only makes the matter more remarkable. Dr. Double L.D. Kate. Why, Papa, Captain Pratt went round Cape Horn, and Captain Smitherton doubled the Cape of Good Hope. Uncle. Precisely. The one went east, and the other went west. You jade, and they both have gone quite round the world. By the by, Dr. Double L.D. Myself, hurriedly. Captain Pratt, you must come and spend the evening with us tomorrow. You and Smitherton, you can tell us all about your voyage, and we'll have a game of whist, and... Pratt. Whist, my dear fellow, you forget. Tomorrow will be Sunday. Some other evening. Kate. Oh, no, fie. Robert's not quite so bad as that. Today's Sunday. Pratt. I beg both your pardons. But I can't be so much mistaken. I know tomorrow's Sunday because... Smitherton, much surprised. What are you talking about? Wasn't yesterday Sunday, I should like to know? All. Yesterday, indeed, you are out. Uncle. Today's Sunday. I say, don't I know? Pratt. Oh, no. Tomorrow's Sunday. Smitherton. You are all mad, every one of you. I'm as positive that yesterday was Sunday as I am that I sit upon this chair. Kate, jumping up eagerly. I see, I see it all. Papa, this is a judgment upon you, about, about you know what. Let me alone, and I'll explain it all in a minute. It's a very simple thing indeed. Captain Smitherton says it yesterday was Sunday. So it was. He is right. Cousin Bobby and Uncle and I say that today is Sunday, and so it is. We are right. Captain Pratt maintains that tomorrow will be Sunday, so it will be. He is right, too. The fact is, we are all right, and thus three Sundays have come together in a week. Smitherton, after a pause. By the by, Pratt, Kate has us completely. What fools we two are. Mr. Rumgudgeon, the matter stands thus. The earth, you know, is 24,000 miles in circumference. Now this globe of the earth turns upon its own axis, revolves, spins round, these 24,000 miles of extent, going from west to east in precisely 24 hours. Do you understand, Mr. Rumgudgeon? Uncle. To be sure, to be sure. Dr. Dub, Smitherton, drowning his voice, well, sir, that is a rate of 1,000 miles per hour. Now, suppose that I sail from this position 1,000 miles east. Of course, I anticipate the rising of the sun here at London by just one hour. I see the sun rise one hour before you do. Proceeding in the same direction, get another 1,000 miles. I anticipate the rising by two hours. Another 1,000, and I anticipate it by three hours. And so on until I go entirely around the globe and back to this spot, when, having gone 24,000 miles east, I anticipate the rising of the London sun by no less than 24 hours, that is to say, 
I am a day in advance of your time. Understand, eh? Uncle. But double L.D. Smitherton, speaking very loud. Captain Pratt, on the contrary, when he sailed a thousand miles west of this position, was an hour. And when he sailed twenty-four thousand miles west, was twenty-four hours, or one day, behind the time at London. Thus, with me, yesterday was Sunday. Thus, with you, today is Sunday. And thus, with Pratt, tomorrow will be Sunday. And what is more, Mr. Rumgudgeon, it is positively clear that we are all right. For there can be no philosophical reason assigned why the idea of one of us should have preference over that of the other. Uncle. My eyes. Well, Kate. Well, Bobby, this is a judgment upon me, as you say. But I am a man of my word, mark that. You shall have her, boy, plum and all, when you please. Done up by Jove. Three Sundays all in a row. I'll go and take double L.D.'s opinion upon that. End of section 32. Recording by Todd. End of the works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 3, by Edgar Allan Poe.